everybody. I recorded a pretty spontaneous episode with Dr. Jay Mohan. Most of you might know him at Cardiology on Call on Instagram and Twitter. He's currently completing an interventional cardiology fellowship in the metro Detroit area. He's a good friend of mine, and I thought he's the perfect person to have on today to talk with us. So uh, this is pretty raw and unedited. We even kept in the pre-recording talk that we did um but i think this is one of the more important recordings that i've ever done um and i want to keep all of you guys up to date with what's going on uh, between our community um, and i want to keep bringing on physicians and leaders that are going to help us with dealing with covid19 with the crisis happening in hospitals across the country and um you know, we're going to try and bring some valuable information. Dude, All right. this, this is the uh, quarantine life. <laughs> I feel you, man. I feel you. Um, you're quarantined right now? Yeah. Shit. Um, what, like, were you having symptoms or what? Yeah, I started having symptoms uh, in the weekend. Um, chest pain. Uh, or chest tightness, cough, shortness of breath, fevers. Oh, shit, man. Uh, yeah, I just worked the ICU last week. Uh, this was supposed to be my week off. Um, but yeah, so I felt pretty bad. So I've just been isolating myself. Yeah. Have you gotten tested or? Yeah, I got swabbed. Um, it, was, it was negative, but I'm not sure based on what my symptoms were. I'm kind of suspicious that, you know possibly false negative so uh spoke to my program and they they suggested you know just maintain isolation yeah yeah better safe than sorry i heard these tests are not that they're not that sensitive from what i've heard yeah only 70 percent 70 percent i mean yeah it's not that great it's 70 percent when it is done uh properly but uh you know what's interesting is they do the nasal swab and everyone's in their cars now. So, you know, you're sitting in your car and they come to your window and, and you look to them and, you know, you're kind of looking up and yeah. then they, they swab you. Uh, and you're supposed, supposed to be parallel to the ground. Exactly. Yeah. So I can see how that could potentially cause an issue too. Oh, yeah. Damn, bro. I'm sorry, man. Yeah, I'm actually um, getting tested in the morning. One of my co-residents was positive. We were in the same room talking and stuff, and then I'm starting to get a little bit of uh, I mean, dude, I don't know if it's a stress or if it's something else, but definitely got like some feeling a little achy and chilly. So yeah. better safe than sorry, you know? Because my friend had no, like, barely, like, she was hanging around with us. She was barely, you know, she didn't look sick. She had like a very minor cough. I mean, that's, yeah. that's good that you can get tested because, uh, you know, I had to really like basically beg to get tested. Yeah. Well, that's the thing we got to advocate for ourselves. Um, I mean, thankfully, like right now, I, I, I know we're not seeing the volume that you guys are seeing, but we, I mean, I feel like they're doing a pretty good job here, but be, mostly because we've had a little bit more time to prepare. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like those extra two weeks behind everybody else. Um, cause we just started like our first couple of cases, cases were like last Friday, you know, at least, you know, here outside of Boston. So, oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that's definitely, I mean, we, we started probably mid early March. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know? we it's been very slow. It's been a slow trickle for us, but right now is where it's really picking up. That's good, man. I'm, yeah. that was one thing, uh, I would always, I always harp to all my other, um, friends that i know around the country is you know it might be slow now but if you guys are prepared things will go much smoother yeah yeah and i think i think we've done a good job of that uh but anyways i was gonna kind of let you know so like i mean we're basically i'm already recording but i i was just we'll do like a formal introduction and um we can uh dive in and like you can kind of talk about like talk to like about what you've been seeing and stuff um anything you want to focus on um, I think, uh, talking about the PPE issue, um, from a fellow standpoint or resident standpoint is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, definitely would 
like to bring that up. I'd like to bring up, uh, you know, my clinical experience of what I've seen, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of how, you know, I'm a cardiology fellow, but, you know, kind of being thrown in as a medicine um, resident and, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to remember things from five years ago, but, you know, how every, every day it's different. And then, um, you know, I can talk a little bit about this, uh, how I got sick um, and what I've done yeah. or what I try to do to prevent getting sick and then what I've done as I've been sick because I do have two kids and a wife that yeah. I live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we could start with that stuff. Okay. Kind of what everyone's already, everyone's already questioning and thinking. thinking. Yeah. My name's uh, Dr. Jay Mohan. I'm an interventional cardiology fellow at uh, William Beaumont Hospital uh, in the Detroit, Michigan area. Um, I uh, have been an interventional fellow this entire year, um, but since the COVID-19 pandemic started, uh, I was recently redeployed um, in early March uh, to manage a COVID unit as a critical care fellow. and uh, that's kind of what I've been doing for the past, you know, four to six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, Paul, Jay, thanks a lot, man, for joining me. Um, definitely one of the people I look to on social media for information. Um, always looking forward to your posts. And, you know, like you've got a, you got a big army behind you kind of looking up to you and uh, looking forward to your posts. So, hey, we appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Um and I wanted to get you on today because, you know, you're from, you're, you're in, currently in Detroit, right? Yeah, Royal Oak. Royal Oak, okay. Are you at, um, we don't have to name the hospital, but, um, I mean, Detroit's getting hit really hard right now. It makes me really sad because my family's all back in Detroit, Metro Detroit area. Um, I know what the working conditions are like in the Detroit hospitals. I know they're not the best, you know, they're not, they don't have the best resources, um, at least the ones like, you know, in downtown Detroit and, uh, you know, it makes me fear for like my co-residents for, you know, for everybody involved in the healthcare, um, department right now. And over the last day or two, I've just been really trying to advocate for residents, for nurses, you know, really trying to get the message out there that we need protection too. We're not martyrs. We're not soldiers. We're not, you know, we're not to be called to a draft, um, and I really want to advocate for protection for our for our healthcare professionals because from what I'm hearing from people, from all the messages I'm getting, which I might even you know go into and read off on here later, um, but it's just really heartbreaking, man. So before we get into that, I want to know what what have you been seeing right now? Like what what scares you the most, and how well, like what what is your summary of what's been happening so um it's kind of it's kind of crazy how fast everything escalated um i remember just being in the cath lab uh you know in late february and i had just come back from a uh, conference big cardiology conference called crt um and i'd met a bunch of fellows there and um we were at the conference and one of the things at the conference they show live cases and um one of the cases was supposed to be broadcasted from Milan, Italy, and uh, they had to cancel the case because of the COVID-19 outbreak that was occurring in northern Italy. Um, and, you know, at, the, at that time, um, like many other Americans, I didn't really think it was going to be such a big deal. Um, but when I saw that, you know, they were canceling a live case for a huge conference, I was like, wow, this is going to be a bigger thing than I thought it was going to be. Um, so then I came back home and I went on with work every day, normal stuff. And then, uh, we started to hear about the nursing home in Seattle and then, um, California. And then, um, all of a sudden we were finding out about cases that are occurring in Detroit and I'm at a large, uh, 1200 bed hospital, um, that serves a huge portion of Southeast Michigan. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty affluent hospital and it has, uh, access to a lot of resources. So we were one of the first hospitals to offer, um, drive up testing, um, for coronavirus. And, um, I think that, uh, kind of lit a fire, uh, because many 
people from all over Michigan, Macomb County, even Northern Michigan came down to my hospital Mm -hmm. to be tested. And um, what was surprising was a lot of these people were testing positive, but not only were they testing positive, they were coming in fairly ill, hypoxic, um, significant respiratory distress, and uh, they required hospitalization. And so at one point, about maybe 50% of the people we were testing positive, we were admitting to the hospital. And so you can see, you know, how a, a, a big hospital normally can handle the volume, but when you're, when you're admitting, you know, 50 to 100 patients a day for just one disease, not, not including, you know, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, the rest of the stuff that comes in, you can see how a system can become very overwhelmed very quickly. Um, and so, you know, in a matter of a week, uh, we got an email saying, you know, uh, our, our hospital has kind of become the epicenter for Michigan, um, for the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, and, uh, we, we are running low on resources and especially personnel to run some of these, uh, COVID units. Um, and, uh, so a lot of the I will say a lot of the internal medicine residents kind of handled the front load of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as time progressed, uh, they required more and more help from, you know, advanced fellows like myself, gastroenterology, dermatology, ophthalmology, everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, what was surprising to me was uh, out of all these hospitalized patients, many of them were being intubated and requiring ICU attention, um, which is the reason they required, you know, the help of the cardiology fellows and interventional cardiology because, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of these people are very sick um, Mm -hmm. and they spiral very quickly. Yeah, that's something I want to get back to specifically on this point. That's something I definitely want to talk about. But I want to know why do you think this Detroit is getting hit so hard? So, um, you know, being in the middle of it, I've been trying to figure that out myself. Um, You know, when I look at the cities that have had the biggest outbreaks, uh, New York, Detroit, Seattle, Louisiana. Um, at first I was thinking it had to do with travel. Um, you know, the Detroit metropolitan airport's a large hub to many international flights, uh, being a Delta hub. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a lot of flights to Italy, uh, Iran, Middle Eastern countries and, uh, China. Um, and we also have a large Middle Eastern population, specifically Persian Iranians, uh, that, you know, possibly could have been traveling to, to Iran. Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause one of the things that really stood out to me was, um, I know they, they already have said there's eight different strains, but when mm-hmm. initially it hit Detroit, we knew of two strains that were out the L and the S type. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the strains was causing much more hospitalization and mortality than the other. And we were seeing that more severe, uh, and I think Iran and Italy especially were seeing that also. So travel could be one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Another another thing, um, when you look at the Louisiana population, it doesn't make sense for them because the travel is not the same there. But the amount of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, uh, just a generalized um, somewhat unhealthy population may have made them more susceptible And if you look at it, Michigan does have a similar population with a a lot of obesity, uh, diabetes, and hypertension. Mm. So this is the first time I hear of different strains. Um, What can you like enlighten me on that? So um, initially, when Wuhan had the outbreak, uh, the uh, primary the primary strain I I believe this is correct it was the S type strain, Mm -hmm. Um, and then other portions of China had um, another strain of the virus, the L-type, which was a more mild form of the virus and wasn't requiring as much hospitalization and causing mortality. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that the the um, S-type strain was also seen in Italy and Iran, which is why you saw such big numbers. The issue now with that data is I'm not sure what is true coming out of China, um, and if they were actually reporting accurate data, so it's hard to say. But as of right now, I believe there's eight strains that have been uh, genotyped, um, and so I'm not sure. But they're all very similar to each other. But this virus does have a tendency to mutate rather quickly. Yeah. 
so how, how have you been handling all of this? Like, what has your experience been in, in your role now as an attending? Like, so actually I'm still a fellow. I'm an interventional fellow. Right. But they're, um, they've kind of recruited you in, in a sense as an attending, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the biggest change was to do critical care medicine. Um, I haven't run a ventilator since I was a medicine resident. I haven't, you know, ordered, you know, bowel regimens and antibiotics and all that stuff. So I remember my first day on the unit, I was just trying to remember, you know, the stuff that, that I remember that I t- was taught four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily it really is like riding a bike and a lot of it comes back and, and we did have a lot, we have a lot of support from our critical care colleagues, um, that kind of lead us the way and they never really expected us to fully do vent management, um, uh, mm-hmm. but just kind of know how to troubleshoot certain things. Right. Okay. And how, how's that been going? Um, it was, it, it's good. Um, it's actually, uh, you know, at first it was kind of overwhelming because I was put in a new place where I was unfamiliar with a lot of the medicine. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, over the last week or so or two weeks, I really haven't even been reading anything cardiology. It's all mm-hmm. COVID related pulmonary, hematology, infectious disease, yeah. um, just because I want to be the best medicine doctor I can to help uh, my hospital and the Detroit and the United States as much as I can with any knowledge I can come up with uh, how to beat this thing. Yeah, well, that's very, I got a lot of respect for you, man, and that's very admirable, um, and that's an awesome attitude to have. Um, are they, um, are, is this a mandatory thing for all fellows? So um, initially it was voluntary, but, uh, you know, it's really funny. Things really escalate, not daily, almost hourly. So, um, you know, in, in, for the first hour you heard, you know, our, we're having volunteers. The second hour was, you know, we, this is an emergency. We need, you know, as many all hands on deck kind mm-hmm. of thing. So um, all of us got reassigned uh, to different roles, um, mm-hmm. you know, based on your level of training. Um, and you know, how much you can provide to certain units in the hospital. Yeah. And is everybody, as far as you know, on board with this or is there some pushback from others? You know, there's, there's always going to be pushback. Um, and I will say I, I had a little bit of uh, resentment when I first started because, you know, I'm seven years post-grad training. Um, I'm 34 years old or 33 years old, but I'm not like a child. Yeah. Um, I expect to be treated like an adult. Um, Mm -hmm. and I expect to be treated like a member of a team, um, which, you know, at points in time, it was more telling me what to do versus, you know, asking me, you know, do you feel comfortable doing this? Um, Mm -hmm. do you have any input on what, you know, where your, um, abilities would be most utilized? Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of wasn't like that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I see. I can see why, because during a pandemic, it's a lot of uh, quick decisions, and um, you can't really have a discussion about things. But mm-hmm. you know, it kind of was. Uh, but was you kind can. Of a, but I think you can have a discussion. But I think, given the structure of residency and kind of the indentured servitude mentality of residency and the hierarchy of it, I think uh, it puts us at a big disadvantage to actually have a conversation that's equal equally flowing um and that's also something i want to you know get into a little bit more yeah yeah i i'll agree i i can i have to agree with you because um you know i feel like we're we're the ones on the front lines uh we should we should have a lot of voice on to how to make things better what kind of personnel we need do we need backup uh, do we feel comfortable? A lot of this like wellness crap gets pushed down your throat when mm-hmm. they're they're saying people are saying they're worried about your wellness. They're they're really not. Um, but you know, I feel like in times of emergency and pandemics and things like this, we need to work work together. Um, and you know, we've we're on the front lines, and you know, I've been doing this for a while, so I feel like my opinion would have mattered um, if it was sought out. But yeah. a lot of the times, it wasn't. Jay, you have a family, you have kids right now. Yeah, how old yeah, are your I kids? A, I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old. Okay, so you got, you got you know, pretty young kids. How are you handling that at home? Like, are you, um, you know, is that a big concern for you? 
Um, yeah, definitely. I think that's, uh, that's my biggest concern. If I lived by myself, um, I wouldn't have as much anxiety going to work. It's, you know, hearing about the infant death in Connecticut and Chicago and, you know, we don't understand why certain people are getting serious infections and why certain people aren't. Um, Mm. I don't know how I would feel. I mean, I would feel horrible if I brought something home to my kids and they, they got seriously ill because of what I did. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've been taking the utmost precautions, uh, in regards to that. Um, I literally, I mean, I, you've probably seen it on Instagram. I have a whole mm-hmm. process that I take. I change in mm-hmm. my garage. I take a shower at work. Um, I wear three pairs of shoes, one to the car, one to the garage, one inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I, you know, probably one of the hardest things is that I haven't hugged my two-year-old son in maybe two weeks and he doesn't really understand why his dad can't give him a hug. Um, but I'm just too scared to give him something. Man, I can't imagine, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're having to go through that. Um, uh, was this, who, where did, where did this come? Did this come from the hospital did this come from the organized, like the the leadership at at the top of like you know, was it from the program? Where did like these kind of orders come in to to start putting in fellows in these units? Um, I mean, it came out of need. I will say I have to give them that defense, but um, also it came from the the GME, the the department chair of the GME. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, my department of cardiology did try to protect us as long as they could. But when other fellows and residents are being pulled from every, um, department, you know, it's only fair, mm-hmm. uh, that everyone gets pulled, but you know, it came from the top and they, what they did was they applied for a level three pandemic status through the ACGME. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that is approved, you're allowed to redeploy all of your training staff in whatever capacity is needed uh, mm-hmm. to fill the roles of the hospital. Got it. And this, so this brings me to my next point, and that is, um, so there's been circulating uh, all over social media uh, among residents, among doctors, uh, uh, this idea of hazard pay. And as far to my knowledge, I don't believe, has anything changed in terms of your um, protection, in terms of liability, your health insurance, um, your compensation? Has anything changed in your essential role as basically an attending now? Um, the short answer is no. Um, you know, these, these concerns were brought up uh, by multiple fellows to the administration um, that, you know, especially like, because I'm an interventional cardiology fellow. So in my contract, I'm only supposed to be warranted abilities to practice within the cath lab and the, the cardiology clinic. I'm not supposed to, you know, be running an ICU. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made us a little bit nervous um, because if something were to happen from a med legal standpoint, are we covered? Um, the hospital is still supposedly working on that is what their answer is to us. Um, and there is, we do have emails um, that kind of support that we will be covered, but um, there's nothing, there's been no legal change to the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, from what we were told, when it's a level three pandemic status, um, all rules are kind of out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then in terms of the hazard pay, uh, yeah, that hasn't even been brought up um, at all. Uh, we're still paid the same, um, no changes to the contract. There's no talks about, mm-hmm. you know, benefits or anything like that. Um, and I think it's kind of like that universally across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of these things, um, in terms of how GME is handling it with every hospital, there's no, I haven't heard of any fellows or residents getting hazard pay or increased legal, um, console mm-hmm. or, you know, life insurance stuff. Um, the only things I've kind of heard is, you know, 401ks are no longer being matched and, you know, things are kind of almost, you know, on a hold or being taken away. See, like this, that just doesn't make any sense to me, though, that we're, we're, you know, they're essentially taking doctors who could full on be full on attendings. I mean, you finished your residency five years ago. I finished residency uh, three years ago or yeah, three years ago and then cardiology fellowship last year. Okay. 
and you know they're put, you're being put in a role with the same liabilities and attending and with the same duties as an attending but you're still you're not you don't you don't have additional liability coverage and you're not getting compensated in the same way now that to me this sounds like an abuse or a violation of some sort it doesn't it doesn't hold it doesn't sit down well with me for whatever reason that is i don't know why it doesn't sit down well with me but i know we ha- i know you know we're all eager to jump in and help as soon as we can you know especially like me as a resident i'm like hey put me in put me in the tent put me in the ed tent i want to help out i want to you know i want to be where i can to help as many people as i can i'm all about that i'm still in residency and you know like this is part of my 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 obligation nobody's asking me to to go and run a unit by myself and and you know and kind of take on more responsibility i'm still operating under a, a limited license uh you know i i i have yeah. to i have to say that um my hospital has provided adequate supervision um i'm never feeling like i'm alone there's right. always a attending that i can talk to and i don't think any of my other fellows have talked about that at one yeah. point they did say possibly because we're board certified internal medicine that we could be treated as an attending mm-hmm. um but i think there was a lot of pushback by um the fellows uh, that that would be, you know, inappropriate. But I have heard other hospitals are not taking that stance. And, you know, medicine residents uh, or cardiology fellows and GI fellows are acting as attendings without any supervision, which I also think is inappropriate. Yeah. So why couldn't why couldn't this have been done as a, under a moonlighting uh, on, uh, as like moonlighting? Why? Because it could just as easily been that hours were cut on cardiology hours and then you add on moonlighting hours why why has that not been done because that's uh, certainly a viable option as well if Um, if it's really about getting coverage that's a that's a great question um and i I don't have an answer for that um the only thing we were told um, and i think this is across the board from a lot of hospitals is you can become medical staff or be fully credentialed at your hospital um, and uh, become staff, but you you will not be paid as a staff position. And there's there really hasn't been an explanation of why that is. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of a common theme you'll see on social media that a lot of people are a little bit upset about um, a lot of this redeployment without any thought of you know maybe there should be some additional compensation or you know one thing that kind of that kind of really upset me was they basically told me I can no longer take vacation, Mm. um, which is, which is the vacation that is allotted to me in my contract, but I'm not allowed to take it anymore. That's absolute bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, man. Being in a, in a place where it was really hard to hit fast. I, I, I will give some benefit of the doubt to fact that, um, you know, quick decisions had to be made. Um, and the one thing that I think needed, needs to be stressed at other hospitals is there should be equal attending resident fellow participation. It should not just be only resident fellows, uh, attending should participate. And, um, I think when you see that and when residents and fellows see that their attendings are also putting themselves at risk and, you know, taking, you know, they're not sitting at home or sitting behind a computer, they're going in the rooms too. I think that kind of makes people feel a little bit like, okay, we're doing this as a team rather than we're just being used. So Mm. um, I will say at other hospitals, you should advocate for that. um, And I hope that that's happening. Yeah. Um, How do you feel in terms of like protection with the PPE and all that? (laughs) So um, I think this stems from a federal issue, federal level issue, because I'll, I'll tell you from the beginning, and and you know you know that I've been follow, I'm on social media and you know I have a lot of um, network uh, in Italy and I have you know at least hear what's going on in China way more than what other people are that are kind of disconnected. So I was a think I think I was like a week or two ahead of everybody in mm-hmm. what to expect, mm-hmm. um, and so from the beginning it was no. PPE really necessary, even though you saw China and Italy with full hazmat suits, N95, double hat, everything. Mm -hmm. And they were telling us, you know, 
Unless it's an aerosolized procedure, then maybe a N95 is useful. We don't know. Surgical mask is probably okay. Yeah. That was the first week. But this is Second, from the CDC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I've realized is most hospitals follow the CDC recommendation. Yeah. They don't, they don't, you know, this may have to do with the fact that a lot of hospitals are not run by physicians. Um, and that, so people that aren't clinically trained are making clinical decisions. Um, but, uh, they follow what the CDC says. And I think the CDC and the WHO made a big mistake by underestimating what this was. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so even to this day at my hospital, there is a unclear understanding of what needs to be used on COVID positive floors. Mm-hmm. Me personally, I wear a N95 at all times whenever I am walking around a patient care area in the hospital. Absolutely. Because my hospital is almost a hundred percent COVID. Yeah. And, um, the funny thing is, is I look around and all the residents, half the staff, they're not even wearing a surgical mask. And, you know, I, I even have brought up, there's a great paper by the University of Nebraska that came out um, where they tested air samples outside of the rooms of COVID positive patients, not just the ones that were intubated or not just the ones that had an aerosolization procedure, just standard COVID positives that were coughing. And they found that 60% of the air samples outside the room tested positive for viral RNA material. So what that means is that this virus is probably more uh, aerosolized or even airborne um, than we thought, and that N95 masks are probably the appropriate thing to be wearing on all patient care areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even though we know that, the recommendation still doesn't stand because the CDC has yet to say it, mm-hmm. to say that what needs to be done. Yeah, and I, and I saw this study, and I think uh, a lot of us have lost trust in the CDC and in the WHO. Um, and beca- like, it's just unbelievable the recommendations that have been made. Um, we and and this is kind of the point that I, that um, I've been trying to make on my social media is now we need to self advocate because clearly. We don't know enough about this to to trust recommendations that have already been made that have been wrong on multi, on two occasions so far already that we know of, um, and we're putting ourselves at risk and we're putting other people at risk. And I got a message today. You know, I've got I've been getting messages all day from residents and nurses all over the country. A lot from Detroit. Uh, for, for yeah, resident, I'm them. yeah, from U of M. You know, I've, I got the guidelines being sent, and they were the CDC guidelines, and I, my, my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe that ear loop masks are being recommended to wear in COVID-positive rooms. Like it says on there, suspect COVID-positive or suspected COVID-positive, all you need is an ear loop, ear loop mask. I was literally sh- like, I couldn't believe it. And, it, and And at the bottom in fine print, it was like one mask a day, one ear loop mask a day. I couldn't believe it i mean at our hospital we're like they're like any covid positive room n95 even if it's suspected n95 like what and like i'm thinking this is the protocol everywhere like this just sounds like you know like the way it's supposed to be done and i'm and i'm like u of m u of m of all places oh oh, that's crazy and and that's the funny thing is um you know, AJ Curtain, um, who's a big, uh, he's a cardiologist on, in, on Twitter, he, he made a great statement today and said that uh, the CDC made recommendations on, based on what we have, not based on what optimally should be done. Yes. And it was, it was all this, this whole idea that we had this huge PPE shortage um, and we needed to do everything to, to, to maintain our supply. And in doing that, we probably a lot of people at risk. Um, and we probably, you know, we'll see a lot of healthcare workers get sick because, um, the federal government didn't take a stance to say, we need to use the PPE we have. We will find a way to supply it later on. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, we, we did a good job. Like, I mean, my hospital, we, we do a good job at conserving what we have. We have to reuse masks, uh, but we have a good uh, process of the way we do it. Um, but I feel like every single person um, gets the appropriate PPE. But the last step of the puzzle is you should be advising them they should be using it. 
And until certain healthcare workers and, you know, your MAs and your janitorial staff and like until they get told by the hospital that they should be doing something, they're not going to do it because they don't know any better. Um, you know, they're not, they're not physicians, they're not nurses, they're not reading, um, this stuff every day. So you're kind of putting these, uh, people that don't have the knowledge at a disadvantage. Um, so it's, it's really sad to see that happen. Yeah. And I'm just so sad with all of these, you know, like from how many people are reaching out, feeling like they're not protected, feeling like they don't feel safe, um, feeling like they can't speak out because they're going to be disciplined if they speak out. I've been putting anonymous posts all over my social media, um, and it's just nonstop. And it, a lot of it's like University of Michigan over and over again. Why am I getting all these messages from them? Why are there? Why is it? Why is a top ranking hospital not protecting its people? And I'm not here to like, I'm not here to start trouble or anything, but I'm here to just, I want, you know, like, like this, this is not right. You know, we need to be protecting our people. And like you said, to your point, uh, you know, we're making recommendations based on what's available, not what's on, not based on what's needed or what's appropriate. Um, you know, I think. And, and one of the biggest things that really upset me, sorry to interrupt you, but no, one no, of the biggest things that, that uh, upset me about this whole thing was um, how much disconnect each healthcare system is from another healthcare system. So, you know, Columbia Presbyterian and, you know, what's going on in Seattle and Ashner in New Orleans, like they released their protocols and like, how come all these hospital systems aren't talking and saying like, you know, New York's two weeks ahead of us and we see what's going on with them. This is what they did. This is where they started. We, and then we learn from their mistakes, mm-hmm. but that's not happening. It's almost like every state and every right. healthcare system is repeating the same mistakes that were already made. Mm-hmm. So, because there's no, there's no continuity between healthcare right. systems. Yeah. And I think that's something also pretty unique to the U.S., um, whereas a lot of countries have a central command where it's like one federal order is made and things are implemented across all states and all cities. And here we have independent states doing different things at different times. Um, and there's a lot of miscommunication. And it, on top of that, we don't have good leadership. Um, you know, like we're not doing the things that we need to be doing. We don't have a strong leader to stand up and, you know, that we know cares for the the wellness of, you know, the people in the country and is actually putting in the right things in order. And I mean, thank God for Dr. Fossey, who's, who's up there, you know, you know, telling the truth. Yeah. yeah. Telling the truth and, and, and keeping some order in this country. Um, but it definitely, you, we can, I mean, I'm just, I'm really sure. I don't understand how we are double the next highest country. Um, I don't understand how we are, what is it? 290, thousand confirmed cases now um whereas like the next country is italy at 110,000 and then you look you go down the list and like these other countries like 500 a thousand like why why is it like canada 12,000 and they've got big cities they've got toronto they've got montreal they've got vancouver i like i don't get it where where's why is there such a big discrepancy between our numbers and other countries numbers so there's probably a couple of reasons. I think, you know, definitely should be known that we do do the um, most testing. So, mm. you know, by testing more, we're going to see more. We're also mm. a large con- country comparatively. Yeah. Uh, but I think we also have, um, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I think we have an arrogant population. Um, I think people kind of look to our leader and, and kind of copy what he does. And so when he's mocking masks and mocking healthcare workers and saying we're needy and, you know, we're, we just, we're making stuff up and things like that, you know, obviously the public's not going to listen to us because we have such a little voice. They're going to listen to the guy that's on TV every day, kind of giving them false hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a prime example is, you know, every single country that had this issue, where there was a high mortality and caseload, they had a national sh- lockdown. We have still, to this day, despite the the advice of the top leader in med- in medicine, um, Fauci, uh, that we have not have a national lockdown, and we have five states, I believe, that still have um, open. You know, their states do not have lockdowns. So mm-hmm. it's like someone brought up a a great meme. It's like you know having a a 
a a pee section like you can pee here in a pool you know there's <laughs> right it's like it doesn't matter it doesn't yeah. matter it's like their their yeah. people are traveling all over the place it doesn't yeah. matter it's just going to spread no matter what you do right yeah i i'm just blown away by it all and um like it really it, i mean this is exposing us this is exposing all the flaws in our current healthcare system it's exposing our weaknesses uh, and and expo- it's exposing how poorly we're handling this. And I, I hope, you know, after this is all said and done, there there is a complete overhaul of our healthcare system and there is some serious change. There is healthcare 3.0. Um, I don't know, man. I just, I really, I really am like, like this is stressful for everybody. Um, you know, every a lot of people are starting to know someone that's been affected. Um and you know like if you look at the weekly death rate numbers it's like exponential week by week you know 700 something last week uh i don't know what the number was today but it was ridiculous like what was it seventh out i don't know it's just it's it's a it's every year every week it's like times five um yeah yep and it's gonna keep doing that yeah um sadly it's just gonna keep doing that yeah um i want to go into a little bit of the medicine as well um and and in terms of like how we've been treating this and what we've been what we've been doing and what's been working uh i know there's been some talk and some recent papers me and you shared a few back and forth um with uh like how this could possibly be a partially a hemoglobinopathy or uh, some kind of vasculopathy or something of the sort um how like how how is our management right now evolving um i you know i gotta preface this by saying i'm not trying to claim i'm an expert in this and i'm not a pulmonologist or infectious disease you know i'm a interventional cardiology fellow that kind of turned into this um over the past couple weeks and that's the unique thing about this situation is that's happened to so many different people Um, and you know, there are no experts in the field right now. We're all experts. So, Mm -hmm. you know, sharing information is kind of what's getting us through right now. But I would say, I would say you are an expert right now because you, you're exposed to it. You're seeing a lot of patients and you're managing a lot of patients. And these are the experts right now, the people that are dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, you know, it's it's really interesting because day by day the management changes so much. Um, when this first started, um, the goal, and this was recommended by you know University of Washington, where that was the first outbreak, was you know treat this like um, ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, which is an inflammatory condition of the lungs that was that's induced by this viral pneumonia that causes acute lung injury. And severe inflammation and a lot of fluid leak within the lungs. So the goal was, um, you know, keep these people net negative in terms of their fluid balance. So you're really diuresing them a lot, um, and uh, basically try to get them through until they can recover. The problem was people weren't recovering; they were just getting worse. Um, and what was very interesting about this disease was someone would come to the emergency room. They'd be talking to you, and you you know you think you could tell they're they're ill, but you you test you check their pulse ox and their you know ox their um, pulse ox number would be like seventy seventy five percent, and they just did not look like somebody that was satting seventy percent uh, because their respiratory rate was like sixteen to twenty. It wasn't like thirty. It didn't look like they were about to get intubated, um, and that's what's so weird about this virus is the people just have profound hypoxemia, and um, so then you put them on oxygen. You know they're talking to you. They're doing well, um, and then you know the next day they're on a non-rebreather, and then the next day they're intubated, and it's just a very rapid course of action requirements and just a uh, progression of the the diffuse lung injury that occurs. What are they coming in with? Are they coming in with fevers, fatigue, weakness? What's going on? The the most common thing that probably provokes people to come in is the shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will tell you from somebody that um, I, I think I, I possibly also um, was potentially infected with COVID, um, it's this weird feeling um, – 
especially when you're in their thirties, you should never feel out of breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this tightness that just sits right in the middle of your chest. Feels like you know something like a like books or bricks are sitting on your chest, and it just feels like you can't get enough air in. Um, and you have this really bad dry cough. And I think that shortness of breath is what kind of freaks people out. Um, and so they present to the emergency room with that. Um, and then, you know, little do they know before they can even talk to their families, um, which is one of the worst parts about this disease is that they get intubated and then they're on a COVID unit where nobody's allowed to see them and they can't even see their families, um, because they're not allowed in there. That's terrifying. That is, that is the terrifying part about this. I want to, I want to come back to this, but I want to continue on for a second on kind of just like the management and how that's changing. So why, why are we seeing this? Why do you think, like, what do you think is going on that we're missing right now? So, um, I think it's coming out now. Um, I've seen some, some reports, uh, like today and yesterday, um, when we first started managing these patients, the um, everyone went by this protocol called the ARDS-NET protocol. It was a study uh, that was uh, how to treat appropriately treat ARDS with, um, you know, a, a relatively good success rate. Um, and the the idea is you give them a low tidal volume um, and a high PEEP, um, and you keep them dry. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we were doing. Um, we were giving them. Uh, low tidal volumes, and uh, we try to not, you know, their peep, their peep, which is the peak end expiratory pressure um, on the vent. Uh, we we were having them around, you know, ten to fifteen when they started, um, but then these patients just do not oxygenate. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was happening is the best way to improve their oxygenation was to increase the peep, mm-hmm. and so we were having peeps of twenty, twenty five. And like things that I had never even heard of when I was a medicine resident. Yeah. Uh, there's no, there's no protocols for that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, seeing peeps like that. And so I think what was happening was we were so worried about treating that O2 number. Uh, we wanted that to be, you know, above, you know, 80, 90% mm-hmm. that we were giving so much peep and potentially causing more inflammation and injury into the lung that was right. already damaged. Mm-hmm. And it just became a cycle of, uh, immune response, inflammation, injury continuously. Mm-hmm. And then so recently, um, new reports out of the UK and as well as Columbia and New York City saying to utilize a low uh, PEEP strategy to prone these people, which means to flip them on their stomachs mm-hmm. early uh, to kind of recruit the lung um, and to basically not dry them out. Um, I think that was another big thing that we saw was um, I think a lot of people didn't realize that these patients, they were febrile, short, short of breath, chills before they came in, probably four or five days at home. They were probably dehydrated. They came into the ICU already in a dehydrated state, and then we further gave them medicines to pee stuff out mm-hmm. and made them more dehydrated and caused acute renal failure. And so when these patients went into acute renal failure and were intubated, the mortality numbers were greater than 80%. Mm-hmm. Um, so preserving the kidneys uh, to help the lungs actually is an important strategy because the kidneys basically are the way the body can regulate the fluid balance. Mm-hmm. So if you can keep the, the kidneys going, you, you, know, you potentially keep the lungs happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last thing that we realized, um, and this was important to me because as um, part of my role on the team is to put in central lines, A-lines, dialysis catheters, um, and when you're on the team, you want to avoid going into the room as much as possible to minimize your exposure. And one of the things we were seeing was the dialysis catheters were clotting every single day. Hmm. So you'd show up on Monday, the next day they'd be clotted, you have to put another one in. The next day, clotted, another one. So not only were you exposing yourself to put another line, but that dialysis machine wasn't able to run because the line was clotted. Mm. So what we started doing was we looked at um, a lab value called the D-dimer. And when that value was over six times the upper limit of normal, which is around 3,000, we put them on IV heparin. Mm -hmm. And um, we're actually running um, a study on that right now at the hospital map, but we've seen some some good, um, you know, potential outcomes from doing this. 
uh, not only for Lyme thrombosis, but also potentially with the idea that the there's microembolic events occurring to the liver, to the kidneys, um, to the mm. to the lungs. So by treating those, we're preventing further multi-organ dysfunction. Yeah, that's super interesting. And then that study that we had just talked about, um, there was like some interesting findings on there of you know being a correlation with you know, people with lower hemoglobin levels actually having better outcomes. And I thought that was really interesting because you'd think the reverse would be true. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's just more, more crazy things about this virus. It just affects so many different systems. And the idea is that the virus might have some interaction with the porphyrin molecule, part, uh, part of the hemoglobin. And so it, it basically stops the hemoglobin from um, binding iron, which therefore stops it from binding oxygen. So that might be why we are seeing some benefit with hydroxychloroquine um, in the idea that it prevents that um, porphyrin um, interaction. Um, but it's still unknown. But it's very interesting because um, in Italians and Iranians, there's a high degree of thalassemia. Mm. And um, in African-Americans, who is a lot of our population, there's sickle cell. So these patients, for some reason, seem to be more susceptible to severe infection. Mm. That's really interesting. Do we know, do we have any statistics on like a, like specific blood clotting disorders um, or thalassemias or anything like that in terms of outcomes? Or as far as we know, we don't have any anything like that. Probably it's too early for that, but yeah, that would make sense. And it, I mean, what are, do we? Is there any direction? Are you guys getting any direction on kind of like what the next steps in management are? I know we're getting a lot. We're we're getting we're hearing a lot about hydroxychloric uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, um, uh, more so now. Um, but really, we haven't had any like you know good studies done. And I know I think there's one being done right now or in the process of being done. Yeah, you know, um, the initial study with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin was a French study. It was in vitro, 20 patients, observational. Um, and it just showed that the patients cleared the nasal swab quicker, uh, the ones that were on hydroxychloroquine, and even quicker with azithromycin. So that's where that data came from. It's really weak data. Um, but that's how much we're grasping at straws right now because we don't have true treatment. So everyone's getting that. Um, I'm not seeing much of an effect. Um, it, it may have a role with prophylaxis and yeah. in, in healthcare workers. Yeah. But what I'm, I'm the most interested in, um, is the actual medicines that target the virus. So mm -hmm. one of them being remdesivir, right. uh, which is made by Gilead pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. Um, it's very difficult to obtain, um, and you can administer it in pa patients with renal dysfunction. Um, but patients that seem to get it seem to do relatively well hmm. uh, because it's actually inhibiting the viral replication. Yeah. Um, we also are using a medicine called tosuzumab, which is an IL-6 inhibitor, um, because a lot of you guys have probably heard this term, the cytokine storm um, yeah. that the virus causes. Um, and this, uh, this medicine um, inhibits the IL-6, which is an important cytokine that causes uh, this huge inflammatory uh, response that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And are uh, you guys able to anticipate it? Like, are you guys timing it right before? Like, because I, I, we can kind of, you know, it's, is it around 8 to 10 days that we get the cytokine storm? Yeah. yeah so, um, it's, it's interesting because I think initially early in the disease, uh, when this first started, we were checking the IL-6 level in the blood and that would take about five days to come back. Mm -hmm. So we were almost missing the ship, uh, because we get the IL-6 would be high. The patient would already be in multi-organ dysfunction. So they couldn't get the drug. Right. So then what we started realizing and the Chinese came out with this data too was checking inflammatory markers like LDH, CRP, ferritin, um, triglycerides, uh, something called the H score um, basically helped us to anticipate the cytokine storm and to hopefully give something to prevent it, which would be the IL-6 inhibitor. Um, people have been using steroids recently because of the inability to get the IL-6 inhibitor. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's crazy. We're getting all this new information and new data almost daily. And guidelines are changing almost daily. And it's like, like you know, if there's not enough reason to social distance and to physically distance, 
a good enough reason alone is to give yourself some more time in case you were to get really sick so that we have better treatment options and we know how to, you know, handle this thing better. You know, if like every week matters in terms of management and, and we're getting better in managing this by the week. And I, I mean, I have no doubt, give it like, you know, given a couple months, we'll have a pretty good regimen in how to manage this way much better than we are right now. That's, that's so well said. Um, that's so well said because, uh, it's so interesting to see, you know, how slow science is. And the funny thing is, is everyone in medicine is told, you know, we practice evidence-based medicine. The problem is we don't have that right now and we don't have time for randomized controlled trials. They are ongoing, but we're not going to see that data for months. So the people that are infected right now, they need our help now. So a lot of it is just, you know, trying to understand the pathophysiology of what's going on and trying things, you know, and, and seeing if they work. Because if we don't, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these severe infections, they have really high mortality rates. Um, and we're trying anything we can to just maybe slow it down a little bit to buy them time, just like how you said. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, next week we'll know more about what to do and what's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next thing, like I, I said, I wanted to get back to this and it was the, the isolation, um, and how that's kind of like another scary part of this disease, because, you know, not only when you're diagnosed, not only are you not able to, um, like in a, in a lot of distress and probably, it's probably a very scary experience if you're in the ICU with this, there's the added, you know, you're isolated. You can't have your family come in and see you, um, and it's it's um, it's hard on families too. What has your experience been with this so far? That's probably the worst thing about this virus um, is that uh, it really moves fast, and once you're intubated, you know you're either on the vent for two weeks or three weeks, um, or you're not coming off the vent. And so you don't really get the time to figure it out with your family. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, really sad to see a lot of these patients, you know, pass away with nobody at their bedside. You know, they don't even ha- can't even have the staff at bedside, like the nurses and everybody, because, you know, we can't be exposed. So they're literally dying alone. And it's, it's just a really sad and, you know, horrible thing um, that probably makes this virus one of the worst things I've seen in, in that regard. So... You know, we, we've been trying to promote people to FaceTime their relatives when they are going on, you know, six liters of oxygen and they're kind of trending the wrong way. We, we are being realistic with them. You know, this is the course, this, what, this is what may happen. Um, and you got to be ready and you got to be prepared. And, and that kind of brings up another thing that I don't know <clears throat> if you've run into or have seen, but this idea of not resuscitating COVID patients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really big ethical dilemma in medicine right now, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they're basically forcing doctors to make a decision. You know, you could have a 50 year old guy, three kids, healthy wife, every, no problems, you know, they're coding and, you know, you're saying not to try to resuscitate that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, with the being that we have such a PPE shortage, we have such a staffing shortage, uh, we don't want the staff to get sick doing CPR aerosolizes the virus. Um, a lot of these things and a lot of these issues that, that run into, um, really makes doing this job even harder. Yeah. And I was, I literally was just having this conversation with, um, one of my friends who I went to medical school with, who's over in Detroit right now. And she's in the ICU working and she's telling me, yeah, we just got out of it. Like just got out of a code. And I'm like, what you're coding people. And, um, you know, like, doing full CPR and I was kind of shocked because I I was under the impression that we're not, we're, you know, we're DNR, we're having the DNR conversation with everybody that's getting, uh, you know, going to the ICU or getting intubated because, I mean, from what I've read and from, I I think from something that you've shared, an article is just the outcomes are so low when you resuscitate someone anyways that it's not worth it to to go with to to resuscitate to go through the rest the resuscitation and aerosolize the entire environment and potentially expose a lot of people to a lot. I mean, like like 
like you've we've all like for those of us that have seen CPR, we know like we're getting in there, we're doing deep chest compressions. Like I can only imagine what is getting spread. Yeah. Um, and and then to your point, you know, this is an extremely hard conversation to have with someone, especially like a previously healthy person who whose family wants you to resuscitate them, and then you have to explain this and weigh risks versus benefits but i do think it's important that we have some clear and this is the thing it's from what i've been hearing it's differing among attendings and from what my friends telling me in the icu is that you know some attendings are opting not to do cpr and some are and that kind of like we need a coherence we need you know one recommended protocol i don't know if there is if anybody's come out with a recommended protocol to my knowledge are you aware of that I think uh, Northwestern um, in Chicago was the first one to kind of bring up this this idea of do not resuscitate any COVID positive patient. Um, I think there's been various um, protocols that have come from that. Um, I know Henry Ford was in the news recently because their letter leaked, uh, which uh, was a letter that they have that they give to every patient family member uh, to say that, you know, if you're family member codes and the, the physician or the care team decides that this is going to be futile, we will not resuscitate them. Mm-hmm. And for the audience, you know, that they should realize that that's not the normal protocol for a DNR. A DNR is something that the family gets to decide on. Uh, it's their choice. Um, it's something that when you go through, um, you know, setting up a trust for your kids and things like that, you set up yourself. It's not something a doctor says, you know, you're, this guy is going to be DNR. We don't get that, that choice. And so that's what this disease is the first time I've ever seen in my short career that, you know, they're, we're being forced into these decisions, which is, um, this is, it makes this that much worse. Mm-hmm. And is it, I mean, um, what, what's kind of like the protocols you guys are going, is it more a clinical judgment on the spot? Yeah. So, um, we make the decision that if they have multi-organ failure, um, particularly with renal failure and um, high oxygen requirements, um, if, if they've had prolonged course on the ventilator, um, if they are on multiple vasopressor agents for artificially keeping their blood pressure up, um, if they have multiple comorbidities or advanced age, um, we tend to decide not to resuscitate those patients. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, this is this is nuts. This is crazy, man. And um, hey, man, I hope I hope you stay safe and I hope you start feeling better. Um, Can you tell are you how are you feeling right now? Are you doing okay? Yeah, um, I I was, uh, you know, I started getting sick uh, pretty much right after my ICU shift, um, which sucked because this is supposed to be my week off. But um, it started with a uh, dry cough and chills, um, body aches, chest tightness, like I was describing earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, just this weird feeling. I've never felt that kind of chest tightness, shortness of breath feeling, um, which really made me worried. I actually did, um, get, uh, tested, uh, with a little, I had to push a lot to get tested, but I was able to, um, and it came back negative. Um, there is a 30%, it's only 70% sensitive test. And I'm a little bit concerned with how we are doing our testing because um, it's us driving up in our car and, you know, they're they're swabbing you with kind of us looking up at them at the window. So mm-hmm. you're supposed to swab them directly horizontally, but um, could add to the false um, negative rates. But um, I treated myself like I was positive. I've been in isolation in my room. As you can see, this is kind of where I've lived for the last week. It's uh, a little mind-numbing. Um, thank God for Twitter, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, thank God for uh, you posting all the good, you know, posting information, man. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like uh, this thing kind of sucks up your life, you know, because sport. There's no more sports, and yep. you know, your your friends. You can't really see your friends, and you know, I'm I'm just I want to figure out something to help this situation. It's just you know, I can't. You know, this is one of those things in medicine when you've been doing it for a while, they just like you feel helpless as a doctor, you know, because there's not, you know, a pill you can give someone that makes them get better. And for once, 
you know, a lot of times in viral illnesses, we say supportive care and, you know, get them through it. But the problem is they're not getting through it. And so we have to do better job as, um, you know, physicians around the world on how to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jay, uh, appreciate you coming on with me, man. Um, really appreciate you. Everybody, uh, if you want to follow Dr. J, Dr. J Mohan on, on Instagram and on Twitter, he's at cardiology on call. And you got any other places people can find you at? <laughs> uh, those are the two main ones. Uh, I'm, I try to post as much as I can to keep you guys informed. Um, I'm, you know, we'll push, uh, any, any of you guys that are young or not into social media and right now in medicine, I advise getting into it. Um, I've met some really awesome people, um, and it's a great way to network. And then especially in times like this, it's a great way to get information. Absolutely, man. Uh, so like a lot of the information that I'm getting is from like guys like you, uh, you know, some of the other cardiologists, some of the other pulmonologists sharing articles. It's like, I'm reading all the time. Like most of my information is coming from social media and the articles that are being linked, you know, the expertise and like, you know, there's a togetherness. There's a, there's like a coming together of the community and like a, kind of like within our, you know, within like professionals supporting each other, voicing themselves, you know, you know, addressing our concerns. I really meant like, this is, this is a tragedy. This is really a tragedy, but I don't think we've ever come together the way that we have as a profession, as not only as doctors, but as nurses, PAs, NPs, everybody. Uh, And like that unity gives us a little bit of extra, extra strength, I think. And for me, especially, you know, my co-residents, my attendings, my program, like leaders, like these people coming out and supporting us and say, hey, like, you know, we got your backs. Um, and like people showing up every day ready to do their jobs. Nobody's complaining. No, well, for the most part, nobody's complaining unless, you know, like they're <laughs> in a lot of hospitals across America, people are complaining. But, you know, like we're all in this together. We got to all, you know, keep advocating for each other uh, and, it, it, there's going to be a time when we're, when we're going to look back at this and it's going to be one of those things we talk about for a long time, probably. Yeah. And that's so well said. I mean, that's one of my biggest outlets is being able to talk to people like you and, you know, other people on social media that just be able to vent and, you know, get our frustrations out. But at the end of the day, we're in this for our patients and we're in this to solve this problem together. And I'm confident that we will. So, uh, thank you again for having me on and, um, I look forward to doing this again, maybe for uh, after this is all over. Dr. J, man, it's, it's a pleasure talking with you, brother. Anytime, anytime you want to talk, I'd be happy to do this again. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. All right, brother. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Um, this was a really important episode with Dr. J. I think, uh, I think we're going to keep doing more of these kind of episodes, bringing on the people that are in the trenches and on the front lines uh i hope you guys are all staying safe if you enjoyed this episode share it post it on your story tag us at beyond underscore med uh, or tag me at dr rami.do and we'll share your stories thank you guys we'll uh we'll be back soon peace